Muñoz. So this is the first of a series on <coughs> Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And this morning we'll be looking at themes from chapter one, but also by way of introduction to the whole letter. Now if I stood up here and said that you should read the Bible the way you read a novel, I might get shot. But I think there's quite a bit in how we read novels that might help, in some ways at least, with reading the Bible. Imagining your way into people's lives, set of situations. So there'll be a bit of that. But I shan't be making too much up, don't worry. I reckon you can get a story of some sort out of most books in the New Testament. And I think it may, may help to make sense of this letter a bit. The story begins in 49 to 50 AD. So 16 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul had been traveling across what we now call Turkey, preaching, founding churches, getting into trouble. When he got to the northwest corner, uh, top left corner, okay, of Turkey, he had a vision of a man telling him to cross over into Macedonia. There's a bit of water in between the two. Macedonia is what we would now call northern Greece. So he did, and his first port of call was the Roman city of Philippi. He preached, gathered a number of converts, got arrested, flogged, imprisoned, and then an earthquake helpfully got things sorted. The prison governor got converted. The city authorities gave Paul a groveling apology, and they escorted him formally out of town. The next place west he got to was a large port and trading town called Thessalonica. As usual, Paul went into the Jewish synagogue to preach. He got some takers, but most of the converts there were Gentiles. And some of the Jews who resented Paul's teaching most stirred up a riot. They caused a lot of trouble for some of the new believers there in Thessalonica. They got accused of turning the world upside down and undermining Roman rule. Okay, that's serious. Paul, though, managed to escape, along with his companions, Silas and Timothy. And he went on, preaching as he went, to Berea, that's a bit further west. Then he turned south, down to Athens. I don't know whether you have any kind of mind map as to where these places are. I do, and I tend to assume everybody else does. I, tend to th I just think that way, I've got a funny kind of mind. But down south, down on the map, to Athens, and then a bit further still to Corinth. And of course, more preaching and church founding as he went. At some stage, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how they were getting on. Timothy comes back with good news. And so, at that point, almost certainly still in Corinth, Paul writes this letter. Most of the material so far has come from the Acts of the Apostles. We don't actually get Timothy's report 
But reading between the lines of 1 Thessalonians, we can tell that things have moved on quite a bit since Paul left. The news in general is really encouraging. You've only got to skim read chapter 1. And it's obvious that Paul is really delighted with their progress. But it may be hard for us to see just how big a deal it was for them. Quite how much Paul had to be delighted about. Greece 2,000 years ago is a very, very foreign country. I'm reminded of the Anglican bishop who said, wherever Paul went, people rioted. Wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> different people, different world. Three big differences I want to describe to you. We'll get sex out of the way first. Becoming a Christian made a huge difference, particularly if you were a freeborn Gentile man. No sex with anyone other than your wife, so no sex with slave women or children. But that was one of the things you kept slaves for. I'll say no more about that because the subject doesn't come up till chapter four. And I'm trying very hard not to trespass too much. But there is one major issue from chapter two that does get a bit of a pre-echo in chapter one. Now you know Paul's teaching about faith, hope, and love. It comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, doesn't it? And it gets read an awful lot at weddings. Well, actually, it comes several times in Paul's letters, including twice in 1 Thessalonians. Did you notice how it came in our reading just now? No, I'll bet you didn't. Listen. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the NIV translation. More literally, work of faith, labour of love, steadfastness of hope. I wonder if that lot sounds to you like pious and vague Christian cliches that you can easily switch your mind off to, especially when you hear them in a sermon. The first and third, I think, are reasonably clear. Our faith should lead us to change our actions. Might seem obvious to modern Christians, but it would have seemed very odd indeed to pagans that worshipping a god should make a difference to what kind of a person you are, should make you a better person. And hope, our hope, includes the return of Jesus. <clears throat> but uh, no more about that, that's jumping ahead to the last part of chapter four. But the second one, labor of love. Labor of love, that phrase has had 2,000 years to change its meaning, a bit. Here, it most probably refers to manual labor, 
or labor that's mostly manual. You see, it was accepted among the first Christian churches that they had a responsibility to support their poorer members. Sounds to me like what love means. And that means a lot of extra work for people, most of whom aren't exactly rolling in it to begin with. They had to support financially people who've, come to, who've become believers and are on the breadline or below it, as quite a few Christians undoubtedly were, then that's going to take a lot of work. Labor of love really is a phrase that means something. And this is a second big difference from pagan society for them. The idea of helping poor people who weren't either legally dependent on you or in any way related to you, it would have made little or no sense to pagans. Why care about them? It's their problem. Now, Paul mentions this in chapter one, Labor of Love, where he's complimenting them on their progress, but he says no more. He takes it for granted. It's what Christians do, isn't it? So we don't hear a lot of it. It doesn't take up a lot of space in the text of the New Testament. But if you read the New Testament with an eye to these things, it's taken for granted in lots of different places. It's a much bigger issue, actually, in chapter 2, though, because actually it hasn't begun quite as well as it ought. I'll say no more next week. That's, that's next week, not me. The third big difference, that's having to ditch all pagan religious activities. So in right at the end of the chapter, uh, Paul commends them for having turned to God from idols. That's his phrase, how he puts it. Modern Western people tend to think of religion as just one small compartment of life and very definitely optional. You know, Christians are okay as long as you avoid them on Sundays. This gives absolutely the wrong impression of life in Paul's day. Religion found its way into almost the whole of life. Suppose you were a Christian living in a pagan household, say, a Christian wife of a pagan husband, or a Christian slave of a pagan master. How do you handle the requirement of taking part in the daily ritual of an offering to the lares, the household gods, the gods that protected your house and your household? Well, if you were a member of, say, a guild that was an occupational guild, say, bakers or fishermen, what do you do in meetings where the god who looked after bakers or fishermen got honored? Suppose you were invited by relatives or friends to dine in a pagan temple. Do you accept it? Even dining in a friend's house can hardly be done without religion coming into it. What about accepting invitations to weddings or betrothal ceremonies? And so on, and so on. I've tried to imagine a modern parallel. I don't think I've done too well, but here goes. What, 
how would a modern young person cope if they had to deny themselves access to computers or mobile phones? Well, how would not so young people cope? Actually, for the first Christians, it was quite a lot worse than that. If you don't do mobiles or computers, well, you're just a weirdo and a bit hampered in life, okay. Cut yourself off from pagan religion and you are a dangerous subversive. You're provoking the anger of divine powers, powers we all know we need to stay on the right side of. If your house gets subsidence, if there's a corn shortage that affects bakery production, if the bride gets taken ill at a wedding ceremony, who's going to get blamed for that? And of course, just 14 years after Paul wrote this letter, fire destroyed a significant part of the city of Rome. No, Nero didn't fiddle while Rome burnt, that's a myth. But it probably didn't take him too long to work out who to shift the blame onto. And as history records, he was highly successful in shifting the blame. People had pointed fingers at him to start with, and this was the first public persecution of Christians at, uh, in Rome. So, two harmless-sounding little phrases from chapter one. <clears throat> Labor of love and turning away from idols. But for the church in Thessalonica, it's a really big deal. How do they do it? Well, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming with power. But it actually doesn't tell us much about how it happened, just who did it. But Paul does say that he modelled Christian living for them. They followed his example. Well, obviously, he didn't have a New Testament he could preach from, did he? But telling people to follow your example, does that, that sound a bit arrogant to modern people? Can you imagine church leaders inviting you to follow their example? This is the way I live my Christian life. How about you follow? No, 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 no. We won't go there. So what did Paul do? That's chapter two. I'm not going to trespass. <clears throat> Turn up for next week's three instalment. I must say, though, that I find myself, I find the achievement of these new Christians quite humbling when I stop and think what it must have meant. If I try and think my way into being a Christian, a member of the church in Thessalonica or any of the other churches that uh, Paul sends letters to, it's very humbling. Humbling, I suppose, actually, in the way you feel when you read about Christian believers' faithfulness in many parts of today's world. Some Christians get real persecution. Others just get niggling discrimination. And there's plenty in between those two extremes. 
Some Christians have to work out how to handle the demands of non-Christian society. Well, we all do in a sense, obviously, but in many places, it's much harder than for most of us here. So, this is my point about thinking as if I'm reading a novel. It's humbling. It's also challenging and encouraging, maybe inspiring. There's a lot to be got, I think, from learning about Christians elsewhere today. They can sometimes help us answer questions about what it means to be a Christian. We might have asked Paul or the Thessalonians if they'd still been around. But I'm not saying that we model ourselves on believers in Iraq, say, or China. We can't look at other Christians elsewhere for examples of how to live in, Christ in Britain today. But we are one body of Christ along with them. And maybe we can learn from them what our labor of love, that's in Paul's sense of the phrase, labor of love, could be. What we could do in practical ways to help them. And maybe their experience of the love and power of God different in some ways from ours, can teach us something of how to love and worship God ourselves. Getting yourselves out of the environment that you're always in and looking at how different people do things can be very, very helpful and inspiring. And just to correct an impression we can sometimes get from reading the New Testament. Other Christians are real ordinary people, not saints, saints with halos and stained glass windows. And that goes for the Thessalonians as well. You've only got to read two Thessalonians to find out that things actually can go wrong, much worse than in one Thessalonians. But to my mind, that makes it all the more inspiring. It's what God does with ordinary people. Thank you for listening.